So we've been spending time in the Psalms this summer, and today brings us to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. We haven't been going 1 through 32. We've been skipping around a bit. Um, So Psalm 32 is where we find ourselves this morning. Let me read that for us. Then I'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. Psalm 32, this is God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. It's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, let's... Uh, Let us have uh, eyes to see. Let us have ears to understand what it is that you are showing us from this psalm and what you are trying to uh, talk to us about from this passage of your word. So settle our hearts and prepare us for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 32 is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a confessional song, it, it, psalm, but it's also probably more properly uh, known as a psalm of instruction. So the phrasing that you have, that you probably have above Psalm 32 in your Bible, something that we typically don't read when we read, read the Bible, is, is it reads a maskul of David, which simply means the giving of instruction. So one helpful tip. So this is David giving instruction to God's people. And one helpful tip that I got from one of my commentators is that Psalm 32 uh, should probably be interpreted in connection with Psalm 51. So some Bible scholars believe that that Psalm 32 uh, was actually written after Psalm 51. And so this is a response to what David uh, talks about in, in Psalm 51, verse 13. After he's committed his, his, uh, his sin with Bathsheba, after he's uh, uh, killed her husband Uriah to get rid of the evidence, so to speak, um, this is Psalm 51 is David's uh, prayer of repentance of this particular sin. And so you could call it Psalm 51 is, is David's confession and restoration. And so Psalm 32 is this response 
to what David says in Psalm 51, verse 13, where he says these words. Then I will teach or give instruction to. Then I will give instruction to transgressors. Then I will give instruction to transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And that teaching is what we have before us in Psalm 32. So just like we saw last week, David uses his own life experience. He, he uses his own mistakes and his, his, uh, his kind of uh, uh, travels into the depths and darkness of sin. And then as God brings him out, David says, I will give instruction to my fellow sinners. And then we have Psalm 32 before us. So he teaches us three lessons from the text this morning by showing us three things. One, he shows us the posture of the forgiven. Two, he shows us the heart of the forgiven, which is confession. And then three, he shows us the instruction of the forgiven. So the, the posture of the heart and the instruction of the forgiven. So first, the posture of the forgiven. This psalm was, was actually St. Augustine's favorite psalm. So much so that, uh, that when he was on his deathbed, he had Psalm 32 inscribed on the wall next to him so that he could better meditate on it as he slipped slowly into death. The quoting from his comments on this psalm, Augustine said this, This is a psalm about God's grace and about our being justified by no merit whatsoever on our part but only by the mercy of the Lord our God, which forestalls anything we may do. And the reason he says this is because within this first stanza of the psalm, in verses 1 and 2, David is telling us both about our sinful condition and our forgiven posture. Right there in verses 1 and 2, there's so much packed in there, so much so that this is going to be the longest point of the sermon, just in these two verses. Because it's here that we begin to understand what it means to be justified by faith alone. And David is answering that question for us. Because David is describing, we could say, comprehensively, what we begin to see in, in how Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller uh, says it, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So what we see in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, is a clear picture of the gospel. And he shows us this by beginning with our sinful condition, which is what keeps us from, from trying to use good works uh, to justify ourselves because our sin is daily telling us that we are not justified before God by anything that we do. And even the Bible goes so far as to say that even the good works that you try to do in and of yourself to gain acceptance before the Father are filthy rags. They mean nothing and they do nothing for you. So he starts by showing us our sinful condition, which is what we need to understand first is that we are sinners, but then he leads us to who does the justifying. 
So first, David uses three words for sin in these verses. You may have noticed. The first word that he uses is the word transgression. And we we use that word a lot, and I think sometimes we say it not knowing what it means. But it's it's a word that simply means a rebellion against God and a rebellion against God's authority. That's what transgression means. So understand this, that all sin, all sin, from the very small that you would consider very small to the the very large, or what you would consider very large, all sin ultimately is always this, rebellion against God. All sin. Your sin is never not against God. It is always against God. This is why David prays in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, if you know the story of King David, you know that his sin is what we would classify as great sin. He commits adultery. I mean, takes advantage of a married woman. And then, on top of that, has her husband killed in one of the most brutal ways. And here he says in Psalm 51.4, to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Now this isn't David discounting his sin against uh, Bathsheba. It's not him uh, minimizing his, his sin against her husband or even just trying to say, compared to everybody else's sin, mine isn't really that bad um, to the nation of Israel as a whole. Because he's sinned greatly against his entire kingdom. But what this is saying is that David is, is saying that compared to his sin against God, all these other matters pale in comparison. So I think, I think this is the linchpin to understanding what true biblical change is when it comes to sin. It's when we realize that it's not ultimately against the person, but against God. I think it's very easy, and I'm, I'm speaking from, from, uh, from personal experience here. I'm not pointing out anybody else's flaws here. I'm talking about my own flaws and sinfulness is it is very easy to sin against those who are closest to you and then just kind of go about your merrily way and kind of forget it. Typically, they won't hold a grudge. It's very easy to do that. And so typically, we'll sin against somebody. We'll say, a, we'll have a, a, say how our tone will be terrible to our, our spouse or we might get snippy with you know, somebody in passing in the store or anything like that. And we say, well, that's... That's forgivable, that's, you know, forgotten, whatever. They deserved that, I was angry. You can justify it in all sorts of ways. But until you understand that even that small snippiness or that tone that you take is a sin against God, you will never understand the depths of your own sinfulness. And you will have a hard time coming to God asking for forgiveness. This is what the Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren, he wrote this, he says... You don't understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as only a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature 
or as a crime against your neighbor. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. So the second word for sin that David uses, first word's transgression, the second word for sin that he uses is the actual word sin, which is probably the definition you hear most often. This word sin means uh, falling short of the mark or missing the mark. It was a term, you've probably heard this before, that was used in archery to describe someone missing the target. So they would say you've fallen short of the target. But in in our own lives, this target that the Bible is talking about is the target of God's law. And your sin is a failure to measure up to it. None of you, none of you has hit the target. We all fall short of it. So the term is identical to the one used in the Greek in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Romans 3.23. He writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you could actually translate that as, For all have missed the mark and therefore fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We have all sinned. Transgression, sin, and the third word David uses for sin is iniquity. Iniquity. This word means, uh, it can mean corrupt, it can mean twisted, it can mean crooked, it could also mean, it could also mean guilt as well. And what this does for us, David using these three words to describe sin, what this does for us is that it kind of, it rounds out for us what sin actually is. It gives us a fuller picture of what sin actually is. So the first word describes sin in relation to God. The second word describes sin in relation to the law. And then the third word here describes sin in relation to ourselves. So sin causes this friction between us and God. Sin causes this friction between us and God's word. And then sin causes this friction actually inside of us. Meaning the more you fall prey to sin, the more twisted and corrupt you become. And just in my many years of pastoral ministry, I have seen this happen to men and women over and over and over again. To where sin takes hold in their hearts, and they don't confess, and they don't repent, and it just grows harder and harder and harder until they slip away. So the more hardened you are to its effects upon you, the more you sin. So hopefully you're beginning to see that you are more sinful and more flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. And David shows us that uh, in these next three words that he uses. He is here uh, crushing any hope that you have in yourself and your sin. David is saying, from personal experience, I cannot earn God's favor on my own. I've tried, I've done everything, and it does not work. 
But he's also saying, you are not without hope. You are not without hope. And, and so the first word that he uses to communicate this is the word forgiven, which literally means to have your sin lifted off of you. We all know the weight of unconfessed sin. You may be carrying that weight with you right now. Even, even though we entered into a time of confession, you may still have that weight of unconfessed sin upon you. And I know that it is crushing you. It's crushing you. And you know, sometimes it can cause physical pain, even. It causes that to yourself, but it also causes it to those around you who are affected by you. But when you are forgiven in Christ, the Bible says this weight is removed completely. It's taken off of you. Psalm 103, uh, verse 12 says, uh, Your sin, is, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So far as the east is, the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. And then Isaiah 43, 25, God says here to you, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. God erases your sin. And I will not remember your sins, he says. Let me just tell you this, that those around you may have sinned greatly to those around you. I mean, sins that, that to you seem unforgivable. But let me just say, even if those people never forgive you, and you have truly sought forgiveness in God through Christ, that God does forgive you. This promise is for you. You are not exempt from this promise. Your sin, no matter what it is, has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Your sin, God says, I have blotted out. I will not remember your sins. Even if those around you will always remember your sins. God does not. The sin is lifted off of you when you're forgiven. Now, there are consequences. I recognize that. You may continue to suffer consequences. Look at David's life. He suffered the consequences of his sin, but David was still forgiven. The second word David uses, the so first is forgiven. The second word he uses is covered. The term, this term is, is he borrows from uh, the imagery of the Day of Atonement. So this day is described in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 16, as a day when the high priest would symbolically cover the people's sin using the blood of animals. It was a whole ritual. He would sprinkle blood on them. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the mercy seat to symbolize God's mercy and how it was covered with this blood and that God was going to show mercy to his people because this blood has been spilt on their behalf. So a covering is made for those who are forgiven by God. And this is a covering of blood that tells God when he looks at you, this one. This one is forgiven. He's covered by the blood. So the third word that, that David uses is, tell us what, is to tell us what God doesn't do. He said, the Lord does not count sin against you. 
He does not count sin against you. So the word count there is a bookkeeping term, obviously. But it's, 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 it's the word that, that Paul uses in Romans chapter 4 that Tristan read for us earlier. Let me read those verses again for us. Paul writes, for what, and Paul also quotes Psalm 32, uh, verses 1 and 2 here. So he writes this, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. This is what Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Paul says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul is saying, as he's expositing this text for us and bringing this idea um, even, even further into the light, Paul is saying that God actually counts our sin to Christ and then counts Christ's righteousness to us. Did you hear that? This is what's known as the great exchange. That Christ, voluntarily doing the will of the Father, takes on your sin, and he gives you his righteousness. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It was your sins that he died for. It was your sins that he took on the guilt for. And then he gives you his innocence and his righteousness. So this is what David means when he says, God does not count the blessed person's sin towards them, because he's already counted it toward Christ. So he can't count it towards you. It's already been paid for. It's already been punished. It's already finished. So David shows both the, the comprehensiveness of sin in all of its nuances, but he also shows us the thoroughness of salvation in Christ. So you know both your brokenness, but also the forgiveness offered to you in Christ by faith. And then David moves into the second lesson to teach us a little bit more about this. To teach us what the heart of the forgiven looks like. So this second stanza of Psalm 32 in verses 3 through 5 is, is David recounting from his own life experience what he just told us in verses 1 and 2. And the direction in which he is leading us, the path in which he's, he's leading us down, is this path of confession and repentance. So I say confession and repentance because confession and repentance are not the same thing. They're two separate things. So confession is this. Confession is to agree with God about your sin in community with others through the local church. So James 5 talks about that, to confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. He's speaking about the local church there. So confessing your sin, agreeing with God about your sin in community with others in the local church. And it means we agree with his response to those sins according to the scriptures. So that's confession. 
And then repentance, I would simply say, is the follow-through of that confession. So you're saying, yes, I acknowledge my sin before you, and I'm confessing it before you and asking for your forgiveness, and out of that forgiveness, I am going to live differently. I'm going to repent of that sin that I just confessed, which means I'm going to turn from it and walk in a different direction. So we confess the sin, and then by the Spirit's power, we then do the work of putting that sin to death. So in verses 3 and 4, David lets us know uh, what that feels like when we don't do this. This is what he writes. He says, For when I kept silent, and you could translate that as, when I did not confess my sin before you, my bones wasted away through, gro- through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you felt the weight of your own lack of confession? And maybe you're sitting around going, what are you doing, Lord? What is happening to me right now? Why am I experiencing this? Why am I feeling this way? Why is life going in this particular direction? And sometimes it's valid and that's the way the Lord, the Lord works. We're seeing that this morning. But then there's other times that it's just unexplainable. And the only thing that you can fall back to is your own lack of confession and repentance before a holy God. So much so that it is causing this groaning and the relinquishing of your strength. And the remedy, the remedy, David tells us, is confession. This is familiar ground with David. Remember, he's speaking out of experience. He knows this is how God works in the Christian's life. So last week we saw um, Psalm 30, verse 7 that told us that that David's strength was restored only because God hid his face from him. David had to walk through the valley of shadow and death. He had to walk through darkness to get to a place where he could confess and repent and then pray to God for mercy. So I just want you to understand this. Because you may, you may think that is devastating. You may think that is, is, is unfair. But let me, just, let me just remind you that God's heavy hand upon you is out of his love for you. God's heavy hand upon you is out of his love for you. Even though it's heavy, it's still his hand. And it's his hand that is drawing you back to himself. So then we have verse 5. And David tells us what happens when you do confess. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I confessed my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So notice that David uses Every word from verses 1 and 2 that he used to describe sin here in his account of confession. Sin, iniquity, 
transgression. And that is simply to show us this, that, that all was confessed. David confesses that he has rebelled against God ultimately. David confesses that he has fallen short of the glory of God. He has fallen short of the gospel. He has broken God's law. And then he confesses the corruption of his own heart. He holds nothing back. And in turn, God holds nothing back in forgiveness. And David proclaims, when I confessed, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the wisdom of Proverbs 28.13 sums this up nicely. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So what this means for us is that when we thoroughly confess our sin, God thoroughly forgives our sin. Nothing is left out there hanging. Tim Keller gives a good breakdown of what this means. He says that in our sin, we have both an objective guilt and a subjective shame. So objective guilt and a subjective shame. So objective guilt being we all stand guilty before God no matter what we do or what we say or, or any kind of activity that we are involved in. We all stand guilty before God no matter what on our own. I've already reiterated this point. We are all sinners. Therefore, we are all guilty before God. So that's our objective guilt. We are guilty. Then our subjective shame being that which we are feeling concerning our sin. Verses 3 and 4, David sums that up. So what this is saying is that our sin consumes every aspect of who we are. Nothing is left untouched. But, just like these words that, that God gave to us after our confession of sin today in the liturgy from 1 John 1, 9, but... When we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which means this. He removes your objective guilt so it can't bring you, you into punishment any longer. You're covered by the blood of Jesus, so He removes your objective guilt and then he also removes your subjective shame so you don't remain in the inner anguish of verses 3 and 4. So if you are still in the inner anguish, if you say, well, I think I've confessed my sin, but you are still experiencing inner anguish from your sin, you have not truly confessed your sin, nor have you believed that God truly forgives you of your sin. Because both of those things happen when you are forgiven. The, uh, the, the hymn, Rock of Ages, which is one of my favorite hymns by Augustus Toplady, uh, he, in one of his lines, he, he uses this phrase, uh, be of sin the double cure. This is the double cure. That God not only removes this objective guilt, but he also removes this, this shame that we feel from our sin. He cures you of that. That's the double cure. That in, that in the forgiveness that God gives to you in Christ, 
You are freed from his wrath and freed from the guilt that your sin brings. And then out of this forgiveness, David naturally moves into what uh, he said he would do in Psalm 51.3. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. So he proceeds in verses 6 through 11 to give instruction to the forgiven, our third point. And this is where if you're familiar with this argument in kind of biblical theology and, um, and, and you know, many people debate this, of this, um, this conundrum that we run into with, with, with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James, where Paul taught in Romans, and we read it in Romans chapter 4, that we are justified by faith alone. And then you get to the book of James in James chapter 2, and James says, uh, faith without works is dead. And so there's this, there's this conundrum that many people have argued over, but I think in a way we can make this connection uh, through what David is getting at in verses 8 through 11. Because David is saying here that there should be a response, works, to our justification. Even though we are justified in Christ, which means God looks at, it, at us as if we had never sinned because Jesus' blood now covers us, so we are justified by faith alone. But while we are justified by faith alone, that faith is not to be alone. But it's marked, or should be marked, by good works flowing out of it. So if you are forgiven, you should be living out of that forgiveness. So David gives us fellow transgressors and sinners. David gives us a way to respond to this. First, in verse 6, he calls on the faithful to pray. Because it's the faithful, the forgiven, who seek God. Look at verse 6 of, of, of Psalm 32. David says, let, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach it. So David says, if you are God, godly, you are to offer prayer now. You are to go to God now because David wants everyone to find the same joy that he's found in confession and repentance. He wants them to experience the same peace that he has experienced through his own confession of sin to God. And it's here in this prayer that the mighty waters will not overwhelm you which is symbolic of, of the troubles of the world around us. And not just like way out there, outward troubles around the world where people are starving and there's so much injustice happening, but these are troubles that are, that are personal and happening to you right now. David says when you pray to God, that God will become your refuge, that God will become a hiding place from the chaos that you find yourself in currently. Hear these words of comfort from Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. Joel says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So essentially, instead of troubles having dominion over you, Songs of deliverance will be sung over you. 
sung by all who have been forgiven, much like we do every Sunday. I'm not sure if you recognize that. I think sometimes we come in here and sing songs that, that Seth does such a good job in leading us in, and biblically uh, rich, gospel-centered songs that we sing, and we enjoy ourselves in that, and maybe you're getting caught up in that, uh, the emotional experience there, and I hope you are. That's a good thing. Um, but at the same time, you should recognize that uh, no matter how poorly those are singing around you, this is not a shot at anybody close by me. Um, I'm always thankful that my mic is not on for your sake. Um, that they are singing those praises over you as well. That they are reminding you of the forgiveness that you have in Jesus. And so when we come and sing praises, we are entering into what David is talking about here, that, that you are surrounded with shouts of deliverance. That you are forgiven. So the forgiven sing God's praises. So we pray and we sing God's praises. And in verse 8, we have this promise from God that He will keep His eye upon us. That it is God who continually keeps the faithful faithful. So in the New Testament, James instructs the church. He says this. He says, draw near to God... And God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And the only way that you can do this, the only way that you draw near, is in faith alone, in the one who forgives you, in the one who covers you with his own blood, and in the one who does not count your sin against you. Christ the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the the hard truth of, of trying to grasp and understand our own brokenness and sinfulness before you, God. I know that's even difficult for me to understand at times and to see, but even more difficult to understand how uh, loved we are in Christ, that it, is, that it is even beyond our imagination and something that we will, we will, we will never understand completely this side of, of heaven. But God, give us, a, give us a taste of that. Help us to even just understand just a little bit of what it means to be forgiven of our sins. And then help us, in turn, to live out of that forgiveness. That we would tell others about the, the, the opportunity of, uh, that they have of forgiveness of their sins, no matter what they are, uh, in God through Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.